This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the 4th and 5th centuries in the period of the ecumenical councils of early Christendom. Oh, yes. Keep the story moving. That's kind of a weird word that I recently learned about Christendom. Christendom. It's like the idea that uh, the church and the world are like one unit, uh, like a worldwide religion sort of idea. Yeah. Or what, what what do you mean when you say that? Uh, yeah, you could, you could word it that way and that might be generous and our listeners might appreciate that more. I often use the term, uh, maybe with a little bit of unintentional disdain and cynicism. Uh, I, I kind of use it as like imperial Christianity. Yes. Would be my shorthand. Would be like when Christianity became an empire and that empire did it. It spread all over the globe. We, we lived in a Christian world from... I mean, we're going to talk about today here in the fourth century, third, fourth century, um, fourth century, and and we we were a Christian world, really dominantly, at least in the Western world, it was a Christian world until we're going to run into the French Revolution is when that kind of starts to change. But you know, fourteen hundred years of Christendom, that that's kind of how I use the term. So, yep, yep, that's basically what I understand. Okay, good. Your your term was maybe. More positive in nature. <laughs> yeah, well, depending on how you want to look at it, yeah. But yeah, that it's it's uh it's not a commonly used word. I think it's kind of a a little bit of an archaic term. Sure, but that's what we mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to come up. It is. We'll we'll be talking about that quite a bit for the rest of session five. All right. So this tension that we've been talking about between this growing movement and the Empire of Rome continued until just after AD three hundred. Persecutions would intensify and subside at different points along this curve, usually in response to political necessity uh, and upheaval. The early Christian movement happened to be the second fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire for two centuries. The fastest growing religion, uh, I think we've talked about it at different points, was Mithra, uh, a Roman offshoot of what is typically known as Zoroastrianism. That was the fastest growing religion. Uh, Emperors were sometimes known to claim to be Mithra incarnate. There was more than a few that did that. Roman emperors, especially in the third century, by the way. And the last emperor who made such a claim was Chlorus. Chlorus. He was the father of a pretty famous guy named Constantine. Constantine's father was Chlorus. His birthday happened to be December 25th. That date ring any bells there for you, Brent? Hmm. (laughs) Maybe. <laughs> yeah. This Constantinian dynasty, started by Chlorus, enacted an imperial advent celebrating his birth. So wait a minute. It started an advent advent on December 25th. That's where that date comes from. But nevertheless, I digress. Fascinating. I digress. <laughs> Most people familiar with this period of history will know that Chlorus's son, Constantine, changed the course of Christian history. While the story is generally understood, the the details of the story are quite muddy, depending on exactly who is telling the story and what their ultimate goal is. Constantine found himself battling over a strategic bridge in Rome as people were fighting for the throne. Should this bridge be captured, many say the fall of Rome would be imminent. As history tells the story, Constantine seemed to be backed up against enormous odds. 
According to his testimony, as Constantine considered the possibilities of retreat, surrender, or certain death, he had a vision where the Christian God showed him a shield with the Greek letters Chi and Rho on it, the X and the P, or it's just hard to talk about Greek alphabet and English, but you get the idea. He understood the meaning of these inscriptions to say, in Christ, you will conquer. In Christ, you will conquer. The stories differ. One record is from uh, Lactantius, and the other is from Eusebius. Uh, but it seems that Constantine was converted, quote-unquote, converted that day before the battle. He put his new Cairo symbol on the soldiers' shields, and they went on to victory. Constantine would credit this great, great Roman victory to the Christian God who delivered him from certain death. Historians are all over the map on the truth of Constantine's testimony. Many think the story is completely legitimate. Some say Constantine was a political genius and knew that the writing was on the proverbial wall. As Christianity continued to take a toll on the crumbling Roman Empire, with now more than 80% of the empire being Christian. 80% being Christian. Like I said, were Jesus' feet right on the door? I don't know. I don't know. But according to this theory which happens to be my own opinion, Constantine took an opportunity to seize the momentum of popular opinion and attempted to synchronize the paganism of his father's Mithra worship and this growing Christian momentum. Others claim that there is some truth in the middle, maybe a combination of both those things. He both understood the political genius, but also had his own personal experience. And maybe that's true. Maybe even under uh, maybe Constantine even misinterpreted the vision. Maybe he did have a real vision and thought he was doing the right thing, but totally missed what Jesus was trying to say him. Maybe he struggled to figure out what this change in worldview meant politically for an already divided Roman Empire. It's pretty fascinating that Constantine ends up being the the one to do this because uh, the fall of Rome is more or less imminent. Like it's still a couple of hundred years off. Uh, effectively, but he's he's kind of the last emperor who has like singular full control of the entire Roman Empire before it starts to break yeah. apart around the edges and and eventually fall apart. Um, basically, by the end of uh, the period that we're covering in this podcast, but like he was the the last guy who really had the ability to convert the entire empire in one shot yeah absolutely and and yeah and who knows how was it all bad was it all good was somewhere in the middle i I think he sensed that i think he had an awareness of that i think he saw some of the writing on the wall in one case or another in one way or another and 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 that's what we're kind of leaning to here in the story that's that's my thought Nevertheless, this moment in Roman history changes the course of the church forever. And as I see it, certainly not for the better. Many folks will flippantly state that Constantine made Christianity the state religion. This is simply not accurate. Constantine made it legal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. There were no, uh, there were no more penalties and persecutions for the Christians. It wasn't until much later in that century that Theodosius... 
Theodosius would enact new legislation to give incentives to those who claimed the Christian faith, practically making Christianity the imperial religion because it was advantageous to be one. So this newfound freedom meant that Christians didn't have to run for their lives anymore. It's great, right? That sounds pretty good. Brent, you think? Yeah, sure. Maybe. And and I mean that. Maybe, maybe. There's definitely some good things about that. It's good to not have to run for your life and to fear execution and death. The problem was that ever since the breakup of the Jews and the Gentiles, the Christians had fallen prey to that pesky, uh, and we called it the Gnostic crisis. And that's what we're going to keep calling it in session five, even though I want to be aware and lose that use that term maybe just a little bit loosely of what is Gnostic and what isn't. But we're going to refer to that time in history as the Gnostic crisis. Um, They had fallen prey to this, we would say, an inaccurate theology. And so while struggling to stay alive, these larger theological issues stayed on the back burner. You simply didn't have time to argue about them. But now that folks were free to return to lives of normalcy, these issues took center stage. The different effects of Gnosticism drove the Christians in this almost completely Gentile movement to argue about what the nature of Jesus. Was he a man? Was Jesus God? Was he somehow both? And as they struggled to find answers to questions the Bible wasn't asking, they needed to make a decision to what we would later call orthodoxy before the movement completely splintered. Now, we kind of take some of these things for granted because of orthodoxy, Brent, but can you imagine being in a Gnostic world where everything spirit was what? Was good. It's good. And everything physical? Not good. Not good. So is Jesus a man? That would feel like if you are if you have Gnostic leanings. You can't say that. You, that feels dangerous. But to say that Jesus wasn't a man, that's problematic. So was he God? Was he man? Was he, was he both? And how does, that's actually really complicated now that you're no longer running for your life. These are things, especially coming from a Greek world, that's kind of bent on and, and driven by what, Brent? School of? Hellenism. Hellenism, and even more so? Logic. Okay, excellent. And what, what, what college course do we take? Not logic itself, but there's a, there's a whole... Some people get their degree in blank, and everybody's like, what are you going to do with that degree? Psychology. Not quite. That's, a, <laughs> that's another good one. One that's almost another P word. A silent P word. Just like psychology. Oh, dear. <laughs> How about philosophy? Philosophy. Right? These Greeks and their philosophy. So these Western Greek, these Gentiles, whether they're struggling with Gnosticism or what that looks like, they're bringing this philosophical and they're going, well, it was God. Was Jesus God? Was Jesus man? And this this philosophy is raging and taking over Christian thought. This is going to be mm, problematic on some level. Do you think this is because of sort of a a more rapid quote unquote conversion to Christianity. Whereas in the case of the Jews, they, they receive their word from Sinai and then they go and spend 40 years to like learn what it means to be who they are. Whereas Christians don't have that, that time of training and experience. And especially when you take away, when you take away that Jewish identity and you're no longer being adopted into that family, that has that experience, yes. I'd also add to that where I thought you were headed when you first made the comment, um, the amount of Gentiles that are now flooding into the church and the amount of Gentiles who really aren't, I mean, I don't want to call them true believers, but they're now flooding in because it's convenient, because it's efficient, because it's effective, because it's advantageous. 
and they're not they're not really wanting. I mean, one of the, we linked the the Didache in the last episode in yeah. the show notes. Like one of the things you see in the Didache is you are swearing off if you take on the waters of baptism, you are you are you are swearing off this old gentle gentile pagan way of life. You're you are dying to this old paganism and you are walking into a brand new family, this Jewish walk, this that's what the Didache said. Now it's becoming I don't know if I want to call it watered down, but the Didache is no longer running the show. And now we're having a completely different set of a different set of questions, a different set of conversations. It's all it's philosophy. So it's definitely having an effect for sure on theology. Professor Lisa Vitell, who I heard on a podcast talk about uh, the conversion of uh, Christianizing the Roman Empire, uh, she mentioned that uh, Christianity at one point was kind of a fad among the Roman elite. Like it was, it was very much like I can use this to to position myself higher in the in the Roman imperial hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It just changes the landscape entirely. Uh, power has the tendency to do that. Power and privilege. Uh, so this led, this whole thing, it led to two centuries worth of councils. Uh, what, what do I mean by councils? Church meetings, where the, the movement sought to make decisions on how to move forward. And while this medium had worked before, think of which council, Brent, in the book of Acts? The Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council. So the idea of a council itself, not a bad idea. We use it in the Bible. Is that the only one we have in the text? Yeah, I think, yeah, we could actually like identify in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. So so the, this medium had worked before. I, I think it was set up uh, for a rougher road now that the movement was divorced from its Jewish backbone of truth and text and binding and loosing. Um, I think they're distancing themselves from some of the tools that made those councils so effective. Uh, but there were seven major councils in all. There, there were seven major councils in all. We're, we're going to actually deal with four of them, the major four that stand out historically and everybody usually talks about. Uh, so I will attempt to uh, close this era of history by simplifying, and I'm definitely going to be oversimplifying. So if, again, for all of us church history nerds out there, you're going to be very upset with the way that I summarize the ecumenical councils. You are definitely not going to like, um, I'm not going to get the exact nuances just right. And there's going to be things you're like, that's not it. That's not accurate. That's great. Um, that's wonderful. Remember, that's not the point of what we're doing here. We're painting with broad strokes and a wide brush to try to understand. I'm trying to sum up everything very oversimplified. So for all the ways that I get it wrong, I'm sorry. And you can just save that email. And this is going to vary throughout the empire. Correct. Like you're going to have some of the barbarian nations who have this Christian influence working up into the north, and they're not necessarily going to adhere to your councils. Oh, baby. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not going to get into all those nuances either. So four four main councils that drive this com- conversation. The first one is the Council of Nicaea. Somewhere, uh, let's see, AD 325 is your date. AD 325, Council of Nicaea. The topic of that council, the issue being discussed is the divinity of Christ. The divinity of Christ. Uh, this council was ordered by Constantine himself. This council... Uh, convened to deal with the teaching of Arianism and uh, some other topics too, but Arianism was kind of the main topic at hand. Arianism is the belief that Christ is separate from God, uh, the Father. He's separate from God, the Father. And out of this council, they ended up drafting, drafting the first draft of the Nicene Creed. 
that famous Nicene Creed, which declares Christ as of one substance with the Father. So Arianism was saying Christ is, is different. He's of a different substance than God the Father. And this council said, no, that belief is heresy. Christ was of one substance with the Father. The, the second council we'll, we'll, we'll deal with here is the Council of Constantinople. The Council of Constantinople, A.D. 381. All right, 8381. The humanity of Christ was a topic. So the first one was the divinity of Christ. Now the topic is, okay, what about the humanity of Christ? We, we've, we've determined that Christ was divine. Was Christ human? This council was ordered by Theodosius, who we mentioned earlier. This council, uh, Theodosius I, I should probably stipulate. This council convened mostly to deal with the teaching of Apollinarism. Apollinarism. The belief that Christ was not truly human. They eventually expanded the Nicene Creed. So they took the original Nicene Creed, that original draft, and they added to it, making adjustments that expounded on their previous ideas. They added Apollarianism to their small but growing list of heresies. Then in AD 431, we had the Council of Ephesus. The Council of Ephesus in AD 431. We had done the divinity of Christ in the Council of Nicaea. We had done the humanity of Christ in the Council of Constantinople. And now in the Council of Ephesus, we dealt with the singularity of Christ's personhood. The singularity of Christ's personhood. Theodosius II called this council to deal with the teaching of Nestorius, who taught, although history is divided on some of the details, whether or not it was him or somebody else, um, but uh, he, he taught that Christ was actually two distinct persons, quote unquote, persons, existing as God in one person and man in the other person. So he's fully God and fully man, but he's actually two different persons. The council declared that Christ was in fact one person at all times. They also declared no one was allowed to publish any teachings rivaling that of the orthodoxy declared in these councils. Furthermore, they discussed the teaching of Pelagianism, kind of as what seemed like almost like a side conversation, significant side conversation, but a side conversation was not the reason that they gathered, but they dealt with it while they were there, and rejected the idea of original sin, or excuse me, this Pelagianism rejected the idea of original sin and human depravity, and this third council of Ephesus adopted Augustinian theology, which accepted the idea of human depravity. Hopefully our listeners are staying with us. It's tricky stuff to keep your head on. But the church sided with Augustine and rejected Pelagius. And then we have a fourth council that we'll talk about in AD 451. AD 451, the Council of Chalcedon. The fullness and divinity and humanity, the fullness of divinity and humanity in Christ. So first it was, was Christ God? Answer, Brent? Yes. Is... Uh, Second uh, discussion that they had is Christ human. Their answer, yes. And the third one uh, that they discussed is Christ two different persons or one person. One person. They said one person. And then the last one is on. Okay, so he's one person and he's God and he's man. Is he fifty percent God and fifty percent man? Is he sixty percent God and forty percent man? 
How does that work? Is it, is it full? What's the fullness of divinity and humanity? And this one was convoked by Marcion, not the same Marcion we talked about earlier, a different Marcion. This one is a Marcion with an A. Yes. Let's call the other one Marcion. Yes, absolutely. Very good. (laughs) Very good distinction. This council dealt with the teaching of uh, Eutychian heresy, Eutychian heresy, um, declaring that Christ while being one person, was not completely God and completely man simultaneously, known as that this idea um, is going to be known as the hypostatic union, the hypostatic union. Uh, And this hypostatic union was the council's declaration that spoke to the fact that Christ was, in fact, not only God, not only man, not only one person, but also simultaneously 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Whew. Your four major ecumenical councils out of the seven. Now, if this all sounds just a bit ridiculous, as if we've lost the plot of the story, I would say yes, and I would say no. These theological issues are actually very significant. They, they matter quite a bit. I mean, we're pretty familiar with them today. Absolutely. For this reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does feel on some level as though we've lost the plot of God's great narrative that we studied all throughout four sessions of our podcast, like blessing all nations and being put at the crossroads of the earth and tikkun olam and the repairing of the world and everything we learned about uh, rabbinic teaching, and the kingdom of God and a, a euangelion. And, 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 and now we're, argu- we're arguing about hypostatic unions. Like, it feels like on some level we've lost, we've lost, it's about something totally different. This orthodoxy has become about ideas and philosophy and intellect and affirming a set of beliefs rather than a way that we live and, and, and something that we're walking out. And this might not have been necessary if, uh, I hate to say this again, would this have all been necessary if we hadn't lost touch with our text and the methodology of relationship with God? as we had understood for a thousand years prior through our Jewish brothers and sisters, through Judaism, we understood the narrative of God. If we hadn't let uh, Gnostic ideas invade our faith, would this have been necessary? This is the beginning of a downhill slide that I'm not sure we have ever recovered from. Spoiler alert. Session five, spoiler alert. I'm not sure we ever recovered from this. I do have hope, however, but we'll get to that later. It's not long after this, when Rome falls. This was not a surprise, as Brent talked about. Was that this episode or last episode, Brent? When did you talk about the fall of Rome on the imminent horizon? That was this episode. We talked about Constantine. Yeah, it was not a surprise. Nobody was surprised at the fall of Rome. Uh, it was The writing was kind of on the wall. Uh, the original strength of the empire had disappeared even before Constantine. Uh, the Romans were in constant flux and political instability. Eventually, the Roman Empire loses the vastness of its reach and becomes what history knows as the Byzantine Empire, which is where we'll turn our sights in the next episode. And actually, you kind of see this in the, in the Gospels with uh, when, when Herod the Great dies and, and the kingdom or the, the area gets split into three. Yes. Three different. Uh, yep. And that's exactly what happened to Rome overall. It was very hard to find a leader, a singular leader, where you could consolidate all that power. It just kind of kept getting splintered and fractured, and that division ended up being its downfall. So if somehow you found yourself here as your first episode, and you're like, wait a second, I should know about this. Yeah, listen to the whole podcast. (laughs) Absolutely. It's the same ideas over and over again. It's kind of (laughs) crazy. All right, well, we'll be back uh, next episode, beginning with AD 500 and uh, continue our journey through church history. 
So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.